0: Welcome to Business and Investing with Grant and Charlie, where we are enhancing your complete set of skills to build wealth inside and outside your business. Charlie, let's talk about a topic around how to get rich. Disclaimer, it's not financial advice, but I do know one way to not get rich. Do you want to know what it is? I'd love to know. Don't travel to Hawaii. It's bloody expensive. (laughs) But the second thing is, any... Little stepping stones to get you there is always helpful. That's what I've always found. Every little tidbit helps. And there is one tidbit that I've found that has always helped me. Do you want to know what that is?
1: Wait, so you're telling me the way not to get rich, don't go to Hawaii, avoid Hawaii. Side note, I would love it if someone got rich going to Hawaii, listened to this show and (laughs) sent us the story of how that happened. So if that could happen, that'd be great. Exactly. But what do you got for me? How can I actually get rich now? So this amazing
0: thing. I was scouring the internet and I found out there's this newsletter that I reckon you and everybody should subscribe to. Uh, you go to businessandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. And all you do is you put in your name and email and click subscribe. And every single week, they actually notify you about new episodes that have gone on the podcast and some other little tidbits, maybe even some little Easter eggs. So if you're listening, Charlie, go over there, subscribe to the newsletter. Just saying. Hashtag just saying.
1: Now let's cue your disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Business and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant, myself and the Business and Investing team are in no way, shape or form qualified to give you personal or specific financial advice. We strongly encourage you seek out and use professionals when you are making investment decisions or comparing investment products. Well, I, I can't guarantee people will become financially rich if they join our newsletter. I can't, but will they be rich in happiness <laughs> and joy? Yes, I can. Yes, you I can't can. Buy. You can't, you can't What's buy really happiness. more valuable?
0: <laughs> people who you hang around.
1: <laughs> As a side note, here before we get into the episode, because I'm. I'm really looking forward to today's topic because I think it's a question that's come to mind for all of us. on like, how do you actually get rich? And I've been consuming some interesting content and there's some ideas around it. But my fascination is your experience in Hawaii right now is it's not been what you thought it would be. No,
0: it's fun. it is fundamentally different. So as an Australian, I've never been to America and I'm like, wow, all of the Americanisms, it's true big plates of food, big cars, all that. But I'm actually shocked as to just how expensive hotel rooms are. Man. It is absolutely astronomical. And even food is super expensive. And I guess the Australian exchange rate does not help with that at all. I'll
1: tell you what, we might come back and do a, you know, change the show a little bit and do like travel reviews. I think we could do that. Our audience would love it. So we may do that at a future date, but... Let's get into today's topic because I think that will be a novel one uh, at the best. I- I've recently read a book called "How to Get Rich" by a guy called Dennis Felix, and he's got some amazing concepts in this book that I think he articulates in a really unique way. And I actually hadn't heard them anywhere else in many of the other books. And, I- and I'll give you an idea: is like if you uh, of the you know barefoot investor Scott Papecamp, Camp, he's got his own recipe on how you may accumulate some wells. Or if you're in the Dave Ramsey camp, you might you know see his formula as well of how he does it. Or you might be in the uh, George Antone or Robert Kiyosaki uh, again, and they've got their formulas in in how they go about it. So And they are all different, just to be clear on itself. And it's better to pick one of them and go after it than to do none of them. I'm not going to uh, necessarily rank them. But uh, there's a guy called Dennis Felix. And what makes him so unique is that he had already made $100 million before he started Promoting how to get rich, All right? So this is a guy that I must say. Although I wonder, Robert Kiyosaki and um, Dave Ramsey are probably quite up there in net worth. They probably are totally. They'd be very close. The interesting yep. perspective in the yeah it's got to be up there as well. But for Dennis Felix to get to a place where he's worth a hundred million dollars and then decide to write a book about it, very unique, very unique. Now, in the book itself which is what's really got, I think, particularly interesting ideas for this audience we have, is he's such a huge advocate of business, right? Such a huge advocate, which I related to instantly. And by the way, if you are going to go and get this book after uh, listening to this episode, the audio version is a must. The narration on the book is amazing. The way that it is spoken is just, it's brilliant. You, You can't read it. You have to listen to it. They shouldn't have even released it as a, a book you can read. It's that good on audio. Do you feel like you should re- be able to read The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham, or do you feel that's an audio experience? That is definitely an audio experience. The Texan accent makes it right. And then it's like, <laughs> if you, uh, The Goal by Eli uh, Goldratt. Oh, that, that's a production, dude. That's like watching a movie. Man, I, w- I
0: walked seven hours straight that day.
1: <laughs> exactly. It's another one of those. This is like one of those few audio books where it's like they haven't brought in the person who uh, hasn't read it properly. It's got no tone or experience. Or it's like you can't get into it. It's just like listening to a monologue where this book is amazing. It's, um, it's almost like conversational and quirky. And uh, for anyone uh, who hasn't got the context as well, he's from the UK and it's done in a UK accent and it's, it's very, very well produced. But uh, here nor there, we'll do Charlie's book reviews of like how they're actually released at another time. So, I want to get into it. So, I I find this book, it was recommended to me, and like I'm gravitating towards it because this is one of the only ones I've ever seen where it's like flat out he just says you got to have a business, which is something you and I are a big advocate of, Grant. I think that's a huge thing that gets missed in these other camps. And I guess I know why is because in general, you know, employees, the standard being a -A PAYG or um, employed is where it's at, where his view is that it's like to truly get uh, rich. And I love that he says in the book, to get rich early enough in life where you can actually enjoy it. (laughs) I thought it was fantastic as well in his frame. You've got to have a business. And I was like, bam, we're on here, we're on. And then he goes in, and this is where I would love for us to have some discussion and ideation. Two main themes that I got from the book that I think are just so awesome is the first part of it is that if you were to look at being successful in business, what you need to do at the core of it is figure out how to borrow a lot of money at an interest rate. So I'm going to use a round number here. So like, you know, borrow $10 million at 10% per year. And he goes, you need to figure out how you can get that volume of capital and get a return on that capital. So the thinking is that if you borrow $10 million at 10%, if you can get a 20% return on that capital through your business, you are using a huge amount of leverage and just focused on creating a spread. All right, you're very, very focused on borrowing, and he speaks in the book about you know raising capital as a startup, uh, and he goes into some degrees of that. But that's his whole mo of like how you create wealth. So he didn't have the thinking of like you know what's the what's my product. It's like the lens of how to make significant amount of money is all around the one concept of that spread.
0: Did you when I read through it? My brain extended it to start thinking about the other ideas where there is that kind of leverage. So, uh, my brain went straight to people leverage. So, here's like, in your example, borrow 10 mil at 10% and as long as you can get a 20% return, you're happy. And I love that because that's financial arbitrage, right? It's like do a property development. That's the concept. Yeah. My brain then went to, well, where else is that type of arbitrage? And so, it's like people is one that I always think about. It's great. So you pay $10,000 a month, for example, for a team member, and then you charge out twenty or 30000 You get that arbitrage on it. Did your brain go to that level or was it always in the idea of raising money and getting a financial arbitrage on it? Or did you think back to all of these other business models on going, oh, that's just a other idea and another concept. As long as you have access to that leverage, you can infinitely scale.
1: Yeah, great question. My mind first went to real estate, if I'm going to be honest, because that's essentially what we're already doing. And I think any real estate investor would look out there and like the mortgage is such a simple grasp of concept of this. Like if you're going to go buy a house for a million dollars and the interest rate is 10%, I'm just using round numbers, of course, yeah. Right. But the return on that property is 13%. Because of the nature of the debt, you're making 3% on the debt and that's a spread. So debt is clearly like a very powerful mechanism that investors understand really well. So my first example of this is, well, I'm already doing this here. Why aren't I thinking about this in my business in the same way? So it's like, again, there's such an interesting relationship between the idea of like investing is a business, yet time and time again, I catch myself thinking about investing differently than I would my business. And Again, I'm probably thinking about real estate investing more like a business in this context than I have my own business. Where when I've thought about hiring people and getting a return on people, the concept of using debt to do that, I just haven't ever had to do. Mm -hmm. So every business I've run, I've always like self funded the hiring of staff and probably gone more, grown, sorry, more slowly, like bootstrapping. So, again, like even in what we do today uh, with the agency, when we hire, we just hire people and pay for them out of profits. We didn't borrow money to do so. Yeah, so then flip the switch and go, well, what if we did borrow money? If you look at – and I did the maths on this and I was actually like, what an idiot I have been. Maybe. Come back. Maybe. <laughs> I
0: was going to say, how could you be upset with where you are?
1: Let's pretend – and I, I will say this, like our margin is – significantly greater than the cost of debt, right? Significant. Why the fuck haven't we ever thought about <laughs> borrowing money to hire more people? <laughs> right? We're doing it over here in real estate. I borrow millions of dollars over here. Yeah, get another house. And the spread is thin. human right? me, It's like we've literally thought about this like um, – all right, cool, I'm going to get a loan for like 5%. I believe we are getting, you know, not too long ago. We might even have some for 5% today. Yep. And we're buying real estate that we expect to go up at like 7% or 8%. So there's a 3% spread. When the notion of like, I was thinking about this here is like, you know, we're, we're literally, all right, cool, let's pretend I was going to uh, borrow $100,000 to hire an employee for a year and then mapped out the return on that one employee over a year. Like what would I expect to gain financially? A 3% spread would be the worst investment I've ever made in stuff by a lot. We should get that a week.
0: (laughs) There's there's so many variables to factor in there, though. There is is a point of, like, minimum effective dose, right? (laughs) Uh, And there's
1: significantly enhanced risk, right? Significantly enhanced risk in what we're talking about here. And that's why the notion is there. But I'm like, still to the point, why haven't we ever brought this across? Why have we never... Even now, I would say with the level of skill we bring to this game, and uh, I'm just going to you know put this on you right now. We should probably discuss it. This is another point not on the podcast. What if we borrowed a million dollars and put it into the agency? What would the expected return be on that? Could that create a significant jump in where we go from here? And it's
0: I guess the good thing about that idea is it's like the expanded thinking of just go. What is it? The Grant Cardone 10x if just going well okay well if you had excessive capital what would you do in order to grow the business and is it is it scalable in that way and i guess like we can do that thought exercise whenever you would like to do that thought exercise i just go okay is there much more for us to gain by us taking that risk because there is this layer of just going unnecessary risk for unnecessary reward <laughs> and right now it seems pretty darn good but the thought exercise i completely concur and agree with
1: there's something in me that makes me a little bit nervous about borrowing money to invest in um, business like for the agency particularly or any internet business. And inherently, I think in internet businesses are more risky. I, re- I really do. And I will say that is a characteristic here I'm probably you know being a little bit coy with. If I had a different type of business, would I feel a little bit differently about that? Maybe so. So if I was in um, new home construction and I'm borrowing money to execute on contracts of people that have purchased a home, right? So someone said to me, hey, here, build this house. I'm gonna pay a million dollars. And I was gonna go borrow money to execute on that. I would feel very differently about that. And I did even when I was a plumber many, many moons ago where it's like I had a credit account with the supplier, which is debt, right? Where in the notion of the internet, which changes so rapidly and agencies that change so rapidly, the notion of taking on debt where, you know, AI could end us all tomorrow. Seems like enhanced risk at a level I don't necessarily think is wise for me at this stage. However, if you look at the last 10 years we've been in this game, loading up with the skills we have would have been a significantly good outcome. If we'd had borrowed to, and even this year, if we'd borrowed money at the start of this year to get all the people we needed more quickly, instead of just funding it out of profits or spent more on marketing or whatever it is, we would have got a significant return. So, uh, looping this back to the you know book review I'm supposed to be giving right now instead <laughs> of just unlaying my own thoughts. It's very interesting to me that um, – and this is why I love books and getting around really great people is like his view and beliefs is the only way to get rich is to borrow a lot of money and create that type of spreading business. That wasn't even on my radar. It is now. I'm questioning prior actions and all the rest of it. But I thought that was such a unique thing and that many businesses out there might – dangerous word to say on a podcast around this – actually be stifling their success by not willing to use debt and create a spread when it is available to them.
0: I definitely think it's a lens that people should think through it. And I've had so much experience around borrowing money and raising cash inside startups to go and do that leverage. Wait,
1: wait, wait, wait. To which I ask, why haven't you brought this up here? You've got to have a different opinion on this because you have raised capital. Signi- totally. not, not just a little bit, significant amounts of capital.
0: And there's like a list of rules that I tell everybody who raises capital around how to do it. And it's like rule number one, do not right. raise money for delivery. Rule number one, don't
1: spend on hookers. <laughs> rule number two. <laughs> hey, have you been reading my rule book? <laughs> no, I've just been looking at some of the uh, things that politicians have been done by in our country which we'll come back to <laughs> by this thing. And it's like, yes, absolutely. There was a time in Australian history where Australian politicians were running their um, expenses through uh, different channels that we wouldn't concur of. But I'll leave that there. Grant, rules of capital what is, later.
0: What's the name of the company? Like Light Entertainment, PTYLTD,
1: <laughs> that they charge it to. <laughs> you can't leave people in the lurch now. Uh, no, totally, Rumour like, has You it, started Rumour it. has it. <laughs> Oh, you're right. I did, and I'll finish it, and then I'll hand it back to your capital story. Rumor has it that there was a brothel near, uh, I believe it was Canberra, it might be Sydney, that was named like Light Entertainment, and they intentionally named it this thing so that when politicians would go there, they could swipe their credit card, and it would never come through on their bill that they were attending such adult institutions, right? And okay, and then they were running through that as deductibles on there. So, yes, the taxpayer was paying for politicians to go to these types of institutions. Rumour, allegations. I don't know. I did find it interesting. Um, nonetheless, let's get back to Grant's story on debt here and why he hasn't been so bullish on us getting extra capital to grow this thing. It's
0: like all the restaurants that do like the meals with the free beer and the free wine on top so there's no alcohol line on the receipt. I love it, the games that people play. Yeah. So, there's so many rules that comes to like raising money in a business that I have for myself, which is like never raise money to improve just operations. Like hands down, I've seen that go terribly. So, imagine if you and I raised a million dollars to build a delivery team and say, ah, we will go and build the demand after we build the team. Every situation I've ever seen that done in has not ended in a very good light. Uh, the they're in the VC. It sounds
1: game. so logical as well. So that's fascinating. Continue.
0: Well, in the VC game, there's like you never raise for delivery. You're always raise for expansion. And so it's like number one rule. It's like where you just or it's proven. Now you're trying to expand or double down on what you already have. Um, but then the second thing is when you go and do this raising it, you kind of want to look at where the guarantor sits. So like one of the hard and fast rules that I have every time I raise money for any business in the past was that there is no guarantor that sits on the debt. It is connected with the business. So if the business doesn't work or isn't successful, it never comes back to roost on the business owners in this example. And there's just so many layers to a whole heap of this that I just go, when you look at doing it, uh, and then the other lens of it is you have to pay it back depending on how you go for your day, you have to pay it back at some point. And you and I have seen this in a couple of businesses that we're working through where the interest rate and the the principal payment on that debt is actually the thing impacting the current profit margins. That
1: ends up being the thing that stifles growth. I have seen that numerously. Startups who run on credit cards or build up tax debts in the first couple of years, then they finally get profitable, but yet they have to repay all this capital back and then they end up stuck in a situation where they can't grow. Totally. And they've got this
0: little ball that's like holding them backwards in this chain. Um, But even then- like, as we know, human resources, like, we don't control it, right? Like, if you go and buy a property, like, it's the, the property is not going to say, hey, Charlie, hey, Grant, look, I think I'm going to resign and move to another opportunity. Like, our houses are not sending us an email like that, right? <laughs> right? Which means they're, we're pretty stable employees, which means they're pretty stable to have debt on. Where if you're raising money to so you and got to hire people to go and scale growth, like, there's so many variables at play that you just don't have control over and you can't force people into these things. And so just going in, knowing the variables that exist is
1: one key thing. Do you know, did you ever see the show Shark Tank or yes, Dragon A Man?
0: lot. Yeah, a
1: lot. I must say, I, I love Shark Tank. I, I just, I'm, the business owner in me can't help it. I love the ideas and how it goes. But it seems to me the sharks only ever get excited in two realms, right? Like truly excited. Right, it's like When someone comes in and it's like, oh, I've got an order for a billion dollars and I need funding to deliver it, they get excited. All right, so when there's a massive demand for something and proven, like contractual proven, like uh, someone's got a product and they, it's, uh, Walmart wants to put it on their shelves, but they don't have any money to have enough stock to put it on their shelves. They love that. But the other one is the enhancement, right? It's when someone's got a proven model and it's just about expanding upon it. It's the unproven ones where they all shy away from. So it's like someone's got a great product, but no idea how to sell it. That's the ones where they look at and go, oh, I don't like this, unless they have a special unique access to that. And then the other one is um, when they don't have a great product and it's about investing in an unproven product. They all tend to shy away from that. I think there's probably hints in when debt's appropriate as well. Totally.
0: And one of the layers that sits underneath that that you see a lot that they jump at is what's production cost of like a physical product and are you using an outsourced company to do that? Because if you bring it in-house, profitability significantly increases. So that's just that logical, if I raise debt at 10% and I get a 20% return, ah, pretty logical, right? I'm just going to bring it all in-house and I can maintain the demand and it's an immediate profitability bump that will pay for interest and principal back. And so there's just a whole heap of those layers. That you just go, great, minimal variables if I'm buying a machine to produce widgets.
1: Do you think it's a worthwhile thought exercise for the average business owner? So this is the listeners of this show, and you and I, by the way, we need to talk about this when you get back from like your gallivanting. I don't know what you do doing on your world adventures, but anyway. Um, is it an appropriate thought exercise to sit there? And if someone, if someone gave me a million dollars today, how would I inject it? to get a return on that capital and use a, um, use a like steep interest rate. So I know I can get money today at like 7%, even probably 6 pretty easily. Yep. Like use a 10% interest rate or a 12 like double it and sit there and go, if I had to get a 12% return as like the hurdle, how could I inject this money into my business? And it's uh, like a worthwhile way to play it or consider.
0: I think it's a worthwhile consideration in addition to the other side. Because uh, one of the downsides that I think I've mentioned before around being flush when you're in a company that's flush with cash when you've just done a raise or a debt raise or anything is you kind of become lazy with your expenditure, right? Like an, an old mentor of mine used to ask, like, how much mongrel do you have? Like, how scrappy can you get in business? So it's almost like, yes, what would be the thought exercise if you had a million dollars and the opportunities that would be unlocked, etc.? But I'll also do it on the other side. Like, imagine your marketing department had zero dollars. Like what would you do to go, and ra- like to go and generate leads, to go and do everything? Because you have to get so scrappy. And interestingly enough, it's like the bloat in like massive organizations is every five years, they cut it out, they cut it out, they cut it out because they just spend too much money on wasted resources.
1: Oh my God, I love this. Imagine do it. you do the exercise first with the million dollars and then go, how could I achieve most of this without the capital? Zero. For, yep. for like, you know, how do I do this with zero? I'll put it out there, and again, I haven't uh, thought about this, just thinking this would be a great mastermind weekend. Maybe we could get a group of people together and play this game and swap notes and ma- maybe I'll get excited and give someone a million dollars and invest in their business at a steep interest rate.
0: <laughs> There's actually an organization that I know that they go to their marketing department and like, they've got a whole heap of leads coming from one or two specific avenues and they run a scenario of like, imagine that they stopped tomorrow. Like what would we do to generate leads? And they get everyone to go away and start thinking about how they could produce other leads. So for example, imagine an organization that's so heavy on Facebook ads and they go, well, imagine if Facebook and Instagram stopped us today, how would we support the same sales team, the same delivery-sized organization to generate the same amount of leads to get the same amount of sales? What would we do? And I'm like, I love that. That's such a good framing of risk mitigation, but also continuous scale because then they implement that second layer.
1: That is such a good idea. Do you know what? We might have to make a list of these questions that actually do a Mastermind Weekend now, just on the basis of this. Now, if you're listening to this episode and you would come to that weekend, let me know. Repo- get on the email list if you're not already or hunt me down on socials and uh, send me a message because uh, I think I want to play this game, Grant, even if it's just you and I.
0: I'm in. Just tag me in. I love these.
1: This is exactly where business right. becomes If you better. could stop going away, it would be really great um, as well. Also. <laughs> Um, I'll quit throwing shots. I want to come back to this book though, although I am enjoying much of these conversations. And just to wrap up that point on uh, thinking about your business from the idea of making a spread, that lens, um, you kind of hinted on this earlier, but I do think it's worth including. The next component of that, you mentioned like people being one of it. And people is something that comes up a lot in this book as well. And um, the first concept is being able to you know, think about the spread. But the second concept I really took from this book is that you've got to hire people to do the work. And that combination of using other people's money and other people's time in a business sense is that compound unlocker. And he spends a lot of time in the book on people. And one of the points that I thought was particularly interesting that I think you and I may have discussed in another episode, so we won't spend too much time here, is just about finding those crucial a players and overpaying them and locking them in uh, to be a part of it was crucial to his success. Which is so
0: logical. It's just very challenging to have infinite scale at this. And it was interesting. I was talking to someone that you and I both know who's like, oh, I love the Alex Hormozy framework because all he has is these confidence around him and he just deploys them into these great businesses so that they can continue scale scaling. And I said to him, "Like you and I, Charlie, have been inside of some of the businesses uh, that Alex has. And it's like, I guess to the point of infinite scale is the challenge because your few A players are so hard to replicate into other A players. And then it's almost like this hit or miss rate that becomes a challenge. So, it's like, how do you bring in these A players, which Dennis Felix in his book has, and then just grow on their skills whilst looking for the next one, next one, next one, next one, because it's not a one hit wonder. You don't hit them every single time.
1: In the book, this is what I thought was brilliant. So, uh, Dennis, he's actually his business, which we should have put in here, was in publishing, it was in ma- magazines and books. That's what he did. Um, again, uh, I thought it was probably worth noting in here. I really could have done a better frame up with some parts of this book, but the idea is still there. The story he uses in the book, though, is like he uh, met someone that was a, an executive that he, he felt had a huge amount of go in them, huge amount of go. And the first thing he did is that when that person He he knew he wanted that person and he wanted to work with them. Uh, So they worked for another organization, I should say, when he first came into contact with them. Um, The thing that I thought was interesting is that when he thought about bringing them on, it was paying them above what they could get elsewhere was a component of his strategy, but then also making sure that it was their idea he was backing. So this particular person, I think, wanted to do some sort of like tech magazine or music magazine. Um, and that it would be him building his dream within this guy's company. So I thought it was really fascinating in the way that he aligned them with mission to themselves, not his idea. So backing their idea and then also making it so advantageous for them financially that they couldn't go elsewhere. And that's how he structured the idea of getting longevity out of someone. Now, then uh, what was really interesting was a concept that we've heard elsewhere is like, just get out of the way. Yep. Like you've got to make it about them backing their idea and then not having things that would basically lead to that. And his view was that uh, they will work very hard and that's what you want. Where in other times where he's probably tried to hire more someone who isn't that driven and dedicated, hasn't gone well. Hasn't gone well at all for him.
0: Have you seen the Richard Branson approach? Have you ever looked at that through his biography? Not. I'm not familiar with it. So what he does, so when he started uh, Virgin Airlines, he just went to the second in charge of like the, the next best airline and just went and offered them and said, how would you be, like to be the one who fronts up the business? Because you're going to wait 10, 20, 30, 40 years before this other person resigns and leaves their post. Why don't you come and be the number one at my business? I'm going to put cash behind you. And you get to have the role that you're striving for now as opposed to waiting. And that's one of the ways that he actually went and stole talent was just taking the people two or three levels below the top spot in a competitor so that they can go and spread their wings in his business. And he, I think he did that with Virgin Music when they were around if they're still not around. I, I know he did that with the airlines. And I thought it was such an interesting approach of just finding those A players and giving them the room to spread when they don't have the opportunity where they're at at that time.
1: I will say I don't, huge, I don't agree to- wholeheartedly with Dennis's views on this one. I really don't because um, a lot of it I like in the idea of like having employees who are invested in, like they're invested in the idea of something, right? Because if someone's excited by building something within your business, they're going to be much more likely to succeed in that. They, they really are. The part that I don't necessarily concur with is he's done it with a, in a way that's like, well, you can just think of any business you really want to make here and I'll just back yeah, the idea. I think he's gone a little bit too far with it. Richard Branson's version you've mentioned there, I love that so much more. I, but I think the deeper thing is spotting ambitious ambition. Sorry, so, Something that I've taken more seriously in recent times, particularly in some of the hires we've made, and that even when we first discussing uh, working together, is the thing I look for the most is someone who's internally driven to succeed. I think that's such a huge factor. Like, Graham, when, when I um, first propositioned you to work uh, at Vala Media with me, right, I knew because of what you'd done prior, you had something to prove. You were like, I'm more ambitious than what my current world chose." Like, my outside world doesn't reflect what I think I'm capable of in my inside world. Completely. And I just wanted to create an environment for you to unleash that. Like, that's how I was thinking about it. How'd that work out? Terrible.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wait. So all you do is look for people with like trying to prove something to their parents and haven't been able to prove it yet. <laughs> and you're just like, all right, great. Let's yeah. Get wasn't the it,
1: I can't remember who it was. Don't quote me on this. But one of the big consulting firms actually got into a lot of HR trouble because their entire strategy was hiring uh, females out of uni, first-born females with daddy issues. And that was their hiring strategy. They didn't care about the rest because they go, we know if we hire a young female, they're going to view the executives as father figures and continually seek their approval. They're going to work 16 hours a day. Now, horrific, but probably worked. It definitely did work. <laughs> I've read about it.
0: It's But ethically, correct. Like there there is so many... So many unethical ways to generate money and have a one-up on competition, but it's, it's unfortunate that it is. But there's, there's so many people out there that are internally driven and uh, there, it's not all monetary-related as well, which is one of the key things that I took out of Dennis.
1: It doesn't have to be a win-loss scenario, right? It's, it isn't. Like I really think when you work with people either in um, partnership uh, in employee relationship, doing joint ventures, other businesses, whatever it is, the whole structure of the relationship should be win win. Like every like, there's no reason for it to be a win lose scenario. I just I don't understand why that should ever be the frame. Like in every scenario when you work with other people, you want something and they work something, and you can both have it. Like if that doesn't like why set a deal up that you is ultimately going to fail by only one person winning. I don't, I don't understand it. Conceptually, it just seems like a shit idea.
0: I remember a previous guy that I used to know, he tried to teach me about negotiations, and he's like, you always know a good negotiation is a good negotiation when both parties walk away disappointed with the outcome. And I'm like, no, Perfect. that's the definition of a terrible <laughs> negotiation. I'm like, that's not what you want at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe you shouldn't have done that deal if it's such a compromise. <laughs> if it can't be a win-win for everyone, that's probably a sign it's not going to I, man, I used to know this guy that was almost like proud of like how little he paid his employees. And I'm like, that's not a badge of honor. You didn't win. You
0: lost. It's like the people that go to Thailand to buy the little bags. And they're like, yeah, I got him from like 100 baht down like 20 baht. And I'm like, what well, up, man? You saved two bucks. So you're like 30 minutes. <laughs> like, really? Is that a battle that you want to win? Like, this is the game you want to play right now
1: tourism's already come over here and ruined your country. And now we're going to take it further by screwing you over on a handbag. Well done. Well done. Two bucks. Two bucks.
0: It's it's a principle. No, man, it's not like.
1: Anyway, uh, I want to get to the last concept in the book and then we'll we'll wrap this episode up after this one. The most fascinating thing about this book, in a long, uh, stretch, which if anything, by the points we've discussed so far, you can see it's a bit of a unique book in itself. Um, very much written as someone who didn't have to please other people, by the way. You can tell that. So, And then the other side of it, of course, he had connections in publishing. So I dare say they were all keen to just publish his book, right? didn't have to be good or fill a narrative. He could have filled it with racist, sexist jokes, and it probably would have got through, right, in that nature, but he didn't. The end chapter of the book, so he, he goes on. This is a guy that made $100 million, and he said, uh, if I could have my time all over again, because he's older as he's written this book, is uh, I would generate a $5 million net worth in US dollars or pounds or whatever it is, which is significant for that time. And let's say inflation adjusted, it might be 7.5 mil today, right? And then I would stop. I would actually stop and not generate the rest of the wealth I did. I would have retired at that point and pursued things that made me happy and brought passion to my life. And he goes on in the book at the end to say that the. Lifestyle improvements from this $5 million uh, to $100 million, not significant, didn't add any significant value to his time. The most valuable thing he got from crossing $5 million is he completely owned his time. And then past that, the work and time he put into getting to 100000000 million didn't give him any extended value of enjoyment and then actually had a significant cost. Now, don't quote me on this, I can't remember it, but I believe there's a divorce or two in there, estranged relationships with children, um, he wasn't a great father, things like that that he now has regrets about, which I just thought, again, there's no course to sell in this book or anything on the back of it. It's more of a, uh, a sharing book, which is great, I love it. Uh, but the point being is I thought that was a very interesting way to f- finish the book. He's giving you the whole recipe on how you could potentially make a million dollars with some of these concepts. And then he says, but don't.
0: Yeah, yeah, just get here and stop. One, uh, it was really interesting. One of the quotes that I took out of it was where he says, like, being young and broke is better than being uh, old and rich. And I'm like, no way. And obviously he's at that point of being very wealthy and quite old and to your points, like he he's gone through it all and it's just like if I had my time again, like I would have gone back. So I am actually curious, because I saw you put this bullet point down. Having read that and understood that from where you are now on your wealth journey, what changes? Like you are you sitting there saying, Okay, well, I don't believe it. Let's go and get to a hundred million dollars and I'll validate if he's right or wrong. Or is this something where you're like, oh maybe I might now change the way that I'm approaching or Yeah, how has it sort of formed your views or has it not changed anything at all?
1: Well, transparently, I'm in this bucket, right? I'm nearing these types of numbers. I won't give my exact net worth away on this podcast episode because and it's not that I'm unwilling to. It's just that I'll save it for a future episode. Yeah, we'll do it next episode. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I want to really like, you know, clickbait it, build some more drama around it. Um, Truth, truth. Uh, I, so, do you know what? Like It hit home for me particularly because I'm I'm looking at that. But then the thing I noticed is I'm not working like him at all. Like if you look at the quality of my life, I'm a very active father. I play golf several times a week. I have a lot of fun in business and uh, spend time on my relationships. So, I haven't neglected those areas of my life. And my health falls into this as well. Like I like to keep in shape, keep my health up. So. I don't have a low quality of life that I feel like I'm sacrificing from that point. But I don't feel like this is a, like a scale I'll, I'll think about differently here. And I'll tell you what I truly think is like yesterday, I actually put a post up on socials about this, where I feel like being in your 30s is like phenomenal. This is such a fun stage of life. And I feel like I have, let's say, 95% of the physical capabilities I had in my 20s. Sure, I can't, you know, do massive deadlifts or squats anymore, but really apart from satisfying my ego, that offered no value. It's not like I need to pick up large amounts of weight to live. It's just something I was doing for fun. Anyway, so but then in your 30s, I've actually got some capital now and some experience. So all the ideas I had in my twenties that I wanted to do, like maybe buying a Subaru WRX, couldn't <laughs> afford it in my twenties. So couldn't have those fun experiences. Now I can. So in my yep. 30s, I've got the energy plus enough capital to be a little bit reckless. And there's a, a huge amount of enjoying in that. And that is the point that I think Felix now, or Dennis Felix nows really well in this book, is going that, hey, it's like the crossover of like physical capabilities, being young, relationships, energy, it all matters. And it's not worth sacrificing all the utility you can get out of that. To get to hundred million dollars at the age of sixty or whatever it is, yeah,
0: the infinite chase and quest for more is—it's not—it's not a outcome that is just that many people should run to. And I saw this a bit in the software world, man. And it's so funny. This comes back to like the people you surround yourself with. So every book that I read, whether it was like Mark Benioff from Salesforce, whether it's like every one of the unicorn startups that sell, like oh, Slack got acquired by Salesforce, or. Um, what is it? Lynda.com got bought by LinkedIn, etc. And you just sit there and you go, that's me. Like that's where I want to get. So I want to get to the 10 million, the hundred million acquisition. But it's such a big swing of a bat where if you miss, like you end up walking away with zero along the way. And so these smaller sort of achievements along the way doesn't mean to your point that you're going to stop the game now that you're basically there. It's more, well, how do I just take a more calculated next step that's not going to risk what i have now that i can continue to grow on that also supports the lifestyle that i want to now that you've got like a son like jack etc in your life
1: yeah i would think anyone has to ask themselves the question it's like if i had 10 million dollars today what can't i do that 100 million dollars is suddenly going to satisfy like yeah. what, what's it for and if you've got a really good answer to that maybe it is worth it for you like but if it's not then it's like maybe you have to really, really reconsider what your goals are before you give away your most valuable resource, which is your time. Mm-hmm. You really have to think about that in a huge way. But I'll, I'll preface this as well, Grant, because this is the only thing I don't like in this lens of thinking is that you do business to get to an outcome of net worth and then you stop because that's wanting the outcome and that's not loving the game. And we've spoken about this before. It's like, I don't have to work now. Like, so why do I do it? It's like, I love the game. I actually love the game, and I think it's so easy to spot business owners that just want to get wealthy and then don't actually love business or their business particularly, versus the ones who are doing something um, they love and like. Just curiously, Grant, uh, it's like it's nine forty for me right now on a Saturday morning. You're on holiday in Hawaii. I don't think you're actually on holiday, but you're in Hawaii. I'll give it that. In the and middle you've of chosen the day. to spend your time on this podcast, exactly how fascinating i mean this sounds like two guys that just want the outcome and don't love the game does it not
0: (laughs) it sounds like two guys who absolutely love the game they're just not connected directly to the cash outcome
1: exactly right so this is where the paradox of this question hits me differently is like even if i've got that amount of net worth i'm not i i get to live my best life now like i choose this i'm not trying to get to some outcome so that I can not be in business, I actually just want more capital so I can do crazier things in business or bigger things in business. I shouldn't say crazier or just address risk narrative differently, Appropri- I should
0: say. Appropriately. I find, I find this very fast. So I know people who have exited their businesses and, and made significant money only to try and fulfill like find something else that provides them the same amount of fulfillment that they did in the business. Where they're just like, I love that game of like waking up, going for the next sale. I miss that. And it's not that they want the 80 hour weeks or the 40 hour weeks or anything. They're just like, I just, I need that again. So they literally just go and open up another business because of the purpose that it gives to them because they
1: just get to solve mm-hmm. the problems. And I always, I always oh, dude, come We can back- write the list out now. We've, we we, <laughs> I think, and I'm just going to say it now. I've got to say it. I am, and tell me this, have you ever actually found someone? I don't know one, I'm going to preface this, where it's like they had their their baby, their successful business, and they either sold it or finished that run. They go into this void where they realize they've got no meaning and purpose and then they start another business. That second business, never as good. It's never. Not, no. <laughs> I've never seen it. But it fulfills them in some way,
0: shape, or form. <laughs> That's all that matters, Charlie. Uh, but I, always, I also come back and I'll, I'll conclude the entire episode at this point. is like, do you really think that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's wives are dragging them out of bed to go to like those boardroom sessions and like go and read some financial statements of companies? Or do you reckon their wives are sitting there going, come on, stop playing your version of Minecraft and Fortnite and like spend some time with me? And they're just like, no, I just love this too much. Like, what are you talking about?
1: That is the best example of, because um, the key sign in that is that you can see they're getting more, uh, their, the way they translate their opinions. Like the way Charlie Munger talks about crypto investors today, it's like you wouldn't have said that in your 20s, would you? Like you're really <laughs> willing to say what you think now.
0: He's, it's what so it good. Like, it's a great get, example. I can't wait to get to that age where I can say whatever I want and not care about other people's opinions. Like that's where like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett are. Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, do, you, do you really think Roger Federer was struggling to hit a tennis ball? Do you really think Tiger Woods was like, oh, not another golf ball? <laughs>
0: Completely. And it's just just going fine. And I always use the, the kids' example of like Minecraft and Fortnite. Like, do you really have to sit there and go, "No, go"? You have to go and play Fortnite for fourteen hours today. Go. Ah, oh, I don't want to play it. No, just go. It's so funny. Okay, I love. If I okay. have to, it's, it's so funny that we got through a third of the bullet points that we had in this document. <laughs>
1: Oh, it was worth it. It was um, worth it. <laughs> man, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to listen to this book again. I loved it. I really, I really enjoyed it. So for, the, for those that don't, I think uh, just as a quick re- recap here before we finish this one off, thinking of your business as purely of how do I borrow a massive amount of money and get a return on that money? That is the ultimate game, right? And your business is simply a mechanism to produce that spread. Two was the people aspect around you've got to get other people to do the work and the unique idea of like, you know, finding someone that's. That true A player backing their idea and then making sure that compensation matches where they don't want to go anywhere else, or that they, you know, they can play their bills comfortably so that they'll go the distance. You get a lot out of them. Potentially higher first-born achievers who have daddy issues also came up in this episode, just so we'll say. Um, and then the end component here of like, well, if he, you know, Felix kind of goes here, if I could go back in time, stopping at a certain point because there was no net value past. Five mil, I think it was in the book. So the idea of like, you know, what is enough?
0: I love those summaries. Love it. And if you're listening to this and you do want to hear about Charlie's net wealth and that episode that we're sure we will dive into, head over to businessinvesting.com dot com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email, and just reply to the email and just say Charlie, I'm excited for your net worth episode. I really want to understand a little bit more about it because you committed to it. they coming
1: to the mastermind weekend, aren't it? Where the mastermind. Are they coming to this mastermind weekend? we'll just
0: list out all the questions now. Anyway, thank you for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of Business and Investing.